Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Sofa Football Podcast. This week we discuss not only Serie A, but a little bit of Jose with world-renowned football expert Gabrielle Marcotti. From our sofa, to your sofa! I'm Adam Bond, this is Sam Brownsword. Hello. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing Mourinho's arrival at Stamford Bridge, whether Cavani can be following him. We also look at racism in football, Roma, Higuain, and much, much more. So today we have Gabrielle Marcotti on the So Football podcast, and great to have him with us. First, Gabrielle, Sam would just like to ask him. Of course, it was his press conference today at Chelsea. There's not much we can dissect from that, but we were wondering... What what did he learn at Inter, I suppose, that can change him in his second time at Chelsea? Well, I mean, I think um, the thing to remember is that, you know, this is a different uh, Mourinho um, and, and a different Chelsea team. You know, we, we, we often, in fact, he was actually, you know, asked about, you know, what's different nine years later. And, you know, the, the reality is both have moved on. Um, and, uh, you know, Chelsea have shown that they that they could win without him, mm-hmm. um, which, to be fair, they'd won FA Cups and the Cup Winners' Cup without him before his arrival. But, you know, certainly this Chelsea under Abramovich um, had shown that, you know, they won titles with, with Hiddink and, uh, and Ancelotti and Di Matteo and, and, and Rafa, of course. Um, and I think, you know, they... The, the, the players have the players have grown. The, the expectations, I think Abramovich is much wiser now um, I mean, I, I covered Chelsea quite closely, uh, especially in the Ranieri and, and Mourinho eras, and it really was a case of you know giving uh, the manager you know whatever they wanted, um, and that often means you know giving the manager and, and a couple agents. They were basically running the club um, in terms of transfers and whatnot. And if you recall, it was when uh, Abramovich tried to change that with by bringing in Frank Arneson. Uh, that you know, some of the uh, the tension started to mount. Um, you know, that's all different now. Uh, Chelsea have a different structure. They have a director of football in place, Michael Liminalo. Uh Abramovich is much, much more involved in uh, in, in decisions on, on players and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing that's changed. And I think Mourinho has changed too. I think um, you know the time at Madrid. Uh, you know, he's an intelligent guy. It must have been an eye opener for him. Um, you know, for the first time, he didn't have the players. He wasn't able to get the players on side or, or to keep them on side. Um, for the first time, he was you know was in a country where you know a, a lot of things about him were exposed. Uh, it's been some of the same ways that you know it happened at Inter as well. You know, he himself it came out that you know he he'd never been pushed tactically um, as much as he was. Uh, as he was at Inter, um, because it is a more demanding league, uh, you know, in, in a tactical sense for, for the manager as well. So all these things, if you're an intelligent guy, which Mourinho is, you know, your challenge is to try to take them on board and, and, and make yourself a better manager. Have you noticed any specific changes in Mourinho since, um, you know, if you take the line from today um, that he's so, which has been so famously quoted everywhere, the fact that he is now the happy one. Um, although he could have told his face that, um, and um, as opposed to when he was the special one um, all those years ago. 
Well, if I were Mourinho, I'd remind you that he never said the special one. He said, I am a, a special one. Yeah. Um, I was there that day. It just kind of became the special one because we in the media thought, I guess it was a better narrative that way. Mm. Um, I mean, he he did seem muted. He seemed a lot more muted than he was, certainly in his first press conference for both Madrid yeah. um, and Inter, let alone his, his debut at Chelsea. Um <sighs> I don't know. I think I maybe this is part of, of the process for Mourinho. Maybe, you know, he feels that ratcheting up pressure, picking fights and so on, the siege mentality, you know, that, that might have worked in the past, but maybe, you know, he's going to try a different approach. He certainly has got a really, really challenging um, task ahead in terms of managing this group of players. Some of them, you know, were his loyalists. I'm thinking of Terry and Lampard. And... You know, some of them he might have to make tough decisions on about, you know, in terms of giving out playing time and whatnot. You know, that's going to be a challenge. Um, he, if you, if you read, I mean, I always read Duncan Castles. Um, I often disagree with him, especially when it comes to Mourinho. <laughs> but he's, uh, you know, he's certainly a Mourinho loyalist, and he's very well informed on what Mourinho wants to do. And there was a piece on Sunday in the Sunday Times, and if you guys read it, which basically said, you know, Mourinho will have five guys he's going to build a team around and it's Czech, it's Ashley Cole, it's um, it's Lampard uh, and it's uh, Czech, Ashley Cole, Lampard uh, oh yeah, Oscar and, uh, and Eden Hazard mm. uh, well there's no Mata there no. there's no David Luiz there among those five and you're putting your faith in you know veterans like Cole and, 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 and Lampard and Czech uh, you know I, I just thought it was quite interesting that you know, he was so forthcoming with, with that information. Um, you know, that's one approach to take. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it if it pans out. And I think it raises questions, too, about Mata's future, um, as well as that of, of David Luiz. You know, arguably, Mata and Luiz were, were Chelsea's players of the season last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think in the tough decisions that he has to make, Especially after what Cavani said today that um, he's talking to other clubs and that um, you know he'd like to work under Mourinho or Pellegrini and that the Premier League might suit him slightly better. Do you think um, Cavani um, may lean towards Mourinho? I think we have to be very, very careful when um, when parsing comments in transfer season. Um, you know, Chago Silva had a similar one where. You know, after the Brazil-France game, they asked him about Rooney, and he said, of course, I'd like to play with Rooney. He's a great player. Mm-hmm. Well, what the heck is he supposed to say? Like, <laughs> no, I hate Rooney. I never want to see him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that Thiago Silva is going to decide to bring Lane Rooney to Paris Saint-Germain. And in the same token, if you're Cavani, you know, the situation is very clear. He's up for sale. The club are demanding 70 million euros, which is 63 million pounds. You know, they may let him go for a little bit less, but it won't be a lot less because Napoli are a profitable club. They don't need to sell. Uh, he knows, Cavani knows he's a professional. He knows that, you know, if they they, they sell him, they're going to sell him for money. And he's only going to say nice things about Pellegrini and, and Mourinho. Um, and the same way he also said, you know, I'd love to work with Benitez as well. Mm. Although, of course, that kind of, you know, got edited out out of a lot of, uh, <laughs> of wire stories. I personally, you know, 
Mourinho's operating under financial fair play um, right now. Chelsea have to. I don't know that as much as I love Cavani and I think he's you know probably the best center forward of that type in the world. Um, apart from Ibrahimovic, although mm. unlike Ibrahimovic, he doesn't bring all the baggage that, that Ibrahimovic brings. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it makes a sense makes sense to push the boat out to fifty, sixty million mm. uh, for Chelsea. Um, Especially I'm wondering when he has Lukaku there. Yeah, I mean, I would think you know maybe if you do spend money, you do you spend your transfer budget elsewhere, and and you see if some combination of, of Lukaku and 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 Ba and I know Torres is still there. Like this is the problem is if you if you buy Cavani now, then you have to ditch Torres. Hmm. Um, and the problem is nobody wants Torres uh, <laughs> with the, because of those wages. Yeah. You know, uh, and also because this is a center forward who only scored eight goals last season, which is a horrible return yeah. when you're playing up front for a team like Chelsea. Uh, so you know you've got that in the mix. You've got um, you know if you if you sell Mata, fine. Um, you may need to you may need to replace him. He said that he feels he needs a central defender, presumably because. You know he wants he's he's gonna he might sell David Luiz or, or he doesn't see David Luiz as a central defender. Um, you know you're not you know Terry is not a saleable asset. Um, uh, you might get some money for for Cahill possibly, but mm. you know so you're in a situation where if you go and blow this money on Cavani, um, how are you going to strengthen the other parts of the team, which you know I think are just as important to strengthen. In um in a word. Um, if you, if you can do that, what does your gut feeling tell you where Cavani will be next year? It's I'll say Napoli at this stage, actually. Right, that's, that's um, cool. Just because, and again, they may be bluffing, but mm. it's so much money. The only other possibility, I think, is that it's a bit left field is Real Madrid. Um, you know they've been linked with every striker under the sun, but you know you look at it. If they can get you know twenty five million for Iguain, yeah, then you know you're nearly halfway there towards getting towards getting Cavani, and you know there, there's not too many other areas of the pitch that Real Madrid really feel that they need to strengthen right now. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or certainly Ancelotti hasn't made huge demands about who he wants. Um, so I, I think that might be sort of the uh, the outside shot. I personally, you know what, you guys, I, I'm looking at this right now, and I, I am not a huge Lewandowski fan. I find him a little bit out of control, but he is a phenomenal striker. <laughs> In what sense, out of control? He, I think it's his work rate. I just don't think he's that sharp sometimes. Um, you know, with, with with his finishing, and I know obviously he scored a lot of goals, but mm-hmm. and he's a high energy striker rather than uh, you know necessarily a finisher. But I I'm looking at this, and if you can have you know Lewandowski's a year from going out of contract. Mm-hmm. Borussia Dortmund don't want to sell him to Bayern Munich. They've made it very very clear they don't mm-hmm. want to sell him to Bayern Munich. Uh, in fact, they've said they they're not going to sell him to Bayern Munich. You can probably get him, you know, for something. In the twenty-five to thirty million range, given that he's he's you know becoming a free agent next year, the guy's twenty-four years old. He's eighteen months younger than Cavani. Um, you know he's going to cost half as much as Cavani. I I wouldn't be surprised, and, and Borussia Dortmund will want to sell him to you. 
I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised, or, or rather, maybe I am surprised <laughs> that these clubs haven't made a push for Lewandowski. Now, yeah. I know he says he wants to go to Bayern, but you know, if he's faced with a choice of just sitting on his backside for a year or going somewhere else mm. and making more money, um, I'm sure he can be he can be persuaded as well. Um, moving on now to the Under-21 Championships in Israel. We've seen over the past few days the amount of criticism aimed towards the, the whole English system and their whole performance in Israel. What's been so successful for Italy? I mean, I know they've only won two games, but it's still been successful. And we saw the other day that they fielded six Serie B players. But why has that proven to be a successful system? Um, well, first of all, despite the fact that you know Italy over the years haven't always been pretty to watch, um, you know, <laughs> there's one sort of very brutal numbers argument is that um, we're a bigger nation than England yeah. um, by about 15-20% in terms mm. of population. Yeah. Um, we have more coaches, we have better coaches, um, and so on the main, I think top to bottom, we tend to produce better players and players were probably better suited uh, to the modern game. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't, I thought England were horrible in this tournament, um, <laughs> yeah. but I also kind of feel, you know, there's a much deeper problem here. It's not that England don't produce the players, it's that, you know, the players who are there and who are eligible um, don't go to the under-21s. No. Um, it's that Italy had some guys out, of course, Balotelli, al Sharawi. And, and Mattia De Ciglio, but that's because those guys are playing with, with the national team in preparation for the Confederations Cup, which yeah. is an important competition. Um, you know, England didn't have that excuse. Uh, I saw, you know, David Bernstein talking about, um, well, it was more important that Oxley Chamberlain scored a goal at the Maracanã, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, it was John Barnes did. Well, yeah, you know, you know it's, a completely, it's a completely asinine comparison. Yeah. What would have been important um, I think what would be important for England is to have these players grow together um, and, and to have the, the tournament experience together and, and maybe to see people in England shirt actually winning something. Mm. You know, I, I, I wasn't born in 1966, but, you know, that's the last time we actually saw that. Uh, or I guess, no, actually, England won in 84, I think, or 82. But, um, you know, it, I am always flabbergasted how the English FA are, you know, they're willing to spend all this money on St. George's, but then, you know, there was that period of time when Stuart Pierce was a part-time under-21 coach. Yeah. You know, they, they, treat, they treat the under-21s like the ugly sister in the attic, and I, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever, and I don't think it's fair to these players, and I don't think it helps the England team. You know, when, when the under-21 tournament rolls around they should do a better job of marketing it they should mm. you know that they should this is important that they should show that that they care you know in spain that's all they're talking about the under 21s you know juan mata um goes and, and wins euros and then comes back and plays under 21s or sorry he was he won the world he was part of the world cup winning squad and he comes back you know does the under 21s last i mean this kind of stuff is this kind of stuff is important yeah you know and uh I, I find it very disappointing that you know they have this attitude where oh it's you know it's more beneficial to Phil Jones's career to to, to go and uh, you know kind of effectively train with England and uh, you know play a few minutes here and there or, or Oxford Chamberlain or whatever 
than to actually be a leader and experience winning in an England shirt, um, or at least not embarrassing yourself in an England shirt. Uh, and, and, And I think until that changes, it's going to be a problem. And yet what I fear is all the blame will be dumped on Pierce, and Pierce has a responsibility, but guys, um, England have only qualified for six of the last 13 under-21 tournaments, mm. and they've qualified for the last four under Pierce. So, you know, he, he you can't dump everything on him. Yeah. Now, the, the, the English press that were obviously targeting Verratti as the key to Italy's success the other night. I don't know if that was just because it was an obvious choice, or he was the biggest name in that team. But but who stood out for you in the Italian side, or even in the tournament as a whole? Um, Verratti's very good. Uh, the, the the fact that he um you know he had to go abroad to get playing time at a big club mm-hmm. uh, shows you how screwed up um, <laughs> the, the the big Italian clubs are right yeah. now. Um, you know, Inter spent ten million on Kovacic in January when they could have used the same money to get Verratti, but you know, it's a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been impressed, actually, by, uh, well, I've been impressed by Gabbiadini, who, who yeah. isn't um, a regular starter, but, you know, I, I think he's a guy who's uh, he's got great balance, great feet, really intelligent, and he's got, you know, good body on him as well. Insigne obviously looked good, although now he's injured. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I like the way that, you know, that, that defense um, and again, it just shows you how messed up Inter is. That entire back four, plus the goalkeeper, they're all Inter players. They all played in Serie B last year. And I'm willing to bet you, and you know, hit me up in a year's time, that what, not one of those guys will be given a chance to uh, at Inter this season. They're all, all right. going to be farmed out somewhere. They're all going to, you know... In Italy, we have the opposite problem you have in England. In England, you throw guys into the mix sometimes when they're, you know, it's too soon. Um, in Italy, you know, that nobody wants to know until they're 22, 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's um, because Stranatoni's obviously left? They would have had more chance if he was still there because he will work with them at next gen when they won that tournament. You'd have thought so, right? But in reality, they didn't get much playing time with Stranatoni either. Mm. Um, I, I think with Mazzari, it's probably going to be even worse because Mazzari, you know, a bit like Mourinho, he likes, he prefers to work with fully formed veteran players. But certainly last year, when Inter were terrible, and you, you know, you knew that they weren't going to qualify for anything. Mm-hmm. Why they weren't brought into the mix when you know you're playing, you know, Walter Samuel, who's a hundred years old, Christian Kivu, who's old and terrible, or Anokia, who's just terrible. You're playing people like that ahead of them. Um, you know, I think you you really got to wonder, you know. I want to talk about the sentencing about the pro patria supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry if that's the incorrect pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not close enough. <laughs> um, what were your thoughts on that, and was it was it a constructive outcome? Well, um, for those who don't know, I mean, these are the people obviously who were who, who racially abused um, Kevin Prince Boateng and, and two other Milan players back in January. Uh, they've been punished by sporting justice. They've all been been given uh, uh, bans for for one year from from attending um, sporting events, um, and that's a renewable ban. It's the maximum punishment they can get. But there was also a, um, a criminal trial as well, and. They were given heavy sentences, or at least what I thought were very heavy sentences. They were given, uh, five of them were given two months, one of them was given 40 days. Now, 
these are actual actual prison sentences. Mm. Now, they likely will not, obviously they have the right to an appeal, they likely won't serve uh, the sentences because in Italy, if you're a nonviolent offender and you're, you're, um, you're sentenced to less than two years for a crime, um, you don't physically go to prison. But still, I, I think it's, um, you know, these guys are going to have a criminal record now. Mm. Um, I think it's a very, I think they made an example of them. Um, I think it, those are, those are really stiff senses. And, uh, you know, if the, if the idea was to, uh, um, to, to create a deterrent, certainly sentencing like this, I think creates a huge deterrent and, uh, and, and hopefully can, can stop this kind of behavior. Do you think that's, so obviously, um, it is, well, in my opinion, it's quite excessive punishment and obviously you go along with that. But um, what do you think UEFA need to do in terms of, because obviously they've, they've talked about how much it means to them, but then you've got, you know, people like Blatter coming out saying, um, oh yeah, it can all be sorted in a handshake and this well, and that. Well, so. Blatter was talking initially, I mean, Blatter was talking about racial abuse between players, mm. um, not abuse from, from fans. Um, and then, of course, Blatter then changed it, and he got into this whole sort of like, you know, I am tougher than you on racism, <laughs> one-upmanship with uh, um, with UEFA, where he introduced all his measures, which which frankly are kind of stupid because his measures only apply to FIFA competitions, which yeah. is basically the FIFA Club World Cup and, and the FIFA World Cup, where yeah. you know we've never really had a problem. But um, <laughs> that's by the by. Um, <laughs> There's a bunch of issues. I mean, from a from a fairness perspective, um, I think individuals should be punished. You know, you make a you make a choice to racially abuse somebody in a football match, then we go and punish you. I, I, I don't. You know, in a perfect world, you would punish the individuals who do it. You wouldn't punish the clubs. You wouldn't. You know, take these other measures. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is then you get into, and this is a difficulty for UEFA. You get into a bit of a legal minefield, right? UEFA aren't the police. UEFA can't go and charge people the way these guys at the Propatrick game were charged. Uh, laws are different in different countries. UEFA can't go and tell you know somebody in a different country this is how you must behave. Uh, you know, if you get if you racially abuse somebody in Italy, you can get a two months prison sentence. If you racially abuse somebody from the stands in England, you know you probably won't get a two-month prison sentence. And UEFA can't go and tell the British government, look, you know, this is what you must do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's a bit of a joke how there's like this knee-jerk English media who keep picking on UEFA because like, oh, look, the punishments, you know, for the fines are ridiculous, they're laughable. Well, UEFA don't have the power to find the people who abuse racially. They can only find the FA and the clubs. And from the perspective of the clubs, what can they really do? You know, clubs don't have policing powers within within stadiums. Certainly um, the, the, not in all countries. The laws differ, um, especially when clubs are away from home, for example. You know, where did, did, how can they stop people from from doing this? Um, so this whole like, you know, this whole sort of escalating draconian punishments for clubs. Let's throw them out of Europe. Let's you know make them play behind closed doors and so on. I don't really see how that stops people from, from racially abusing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it seems completely, just completely silly. It's, it's a very silly way of reasoning. 
Now, I know one thing UEFA want to do for 2016, and they're helped in this because obviously Platini's French and the Euros are in France. They've, they're, they're, they're working on a deal with the French authorities where basically the stadiums are going to be subject to special laws. Right. And despite the fact that there are freedom of speech laws in France and so on, effectively they're going to create an area or they want to create an area where within the stadiums, if you racially abuse somebody, you are committing a crime, no ifs, ands, or buts, and they want to equip stewards and, and, and police with uh, you know evidence-gathering equipment so that they can identify people who do this and then basically throw the book at them. Um, that's a positive step, but even that, you know, you're dealing with things of national sovereignty and so on. You know, that's way beyond UEFA's remit. Mm, yeah, it's, uh, it's thanks for very much talking about that. Actually, it's, uh, it's obviously an issue that needs sorting out, and and it's really good to talk about it about things that need addressing like that. Really, well, I, I just think sometimes there's like a bit of a, you know, Rio Ferdinand got got racially abused in the Manchester derby this year, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't read in the Daily Mail or the Telegraph the next day or the Times, my own paper, you know, um, people saying like, oh, you know, they need to they need to dock Manchester City points. They need to, to, to fine Manchester City a million pounds. They need to, you know, the, the, I'm, or, you know, and you can say that was only a couple people in the City game. Okay, fine. But, you know, we, we've had incidents at Millwall and so on. You know, people aren't talking about throwing Millwall out of the, uh, um, out of the championship. But, you know, when it comes to UEFA, when it comes to teams like that, then it's, you know, they, they, they beat this whole drum. And uh, I just think it's the wrong way to go about it. Brilliant point. Get your thoughts on Juve, really, and how they're constantly being linked with another striker. You know, obviously they added Llorente on a free transfer. But um, the fact that we're reading about Higuain and Tevez so much... What do you see happening with Juve and the, the strikers that they're trying to bring in? And what can that mean for people like Vucinic, really, who are going to face competition? They're obsessed with this idea of what they call the uh, quote-unquote top player. And, you know, they're convinced that um, they would have done better if their strikers had been as good as their midfielders and their defenders. Um, and they're right on that front. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, the strike force was a weakness for Juventus the, the, the last two years. Um I kind of feel, though, at the same time that all of a sudden, you know, Llorente is being treated as, you know, it's kind of everybody sort of forgotten about him and how good he was yeah. because of the kind of season he had at Bilbao where he couldn't, you know, basically the club decided not to play him as punishment. Um, I mean, they're both very good players. I'm guessing if you play three-five-two, then, you know, and, and you have Llorente as your front man, then maybe Tevez would be a better match than Higuain. Yeah. Um, you got to figure out what to do with Vucinic. Some suggestion that um, Conte, who, you know, let's not forget, he originally played uh, 4-2-4, um, he, you know, might might change it around, go four at the back and uh, and, and use Vucinic wide. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's fine. I mean, I, I don't, you know, Vucinic is Juventus's best striker, but the problem is that's because the other three strikers aren't particularly good. Um you know, he ought to be able to handle competition from, from guys who are, you know, objectively as good as he is or better. And, and that's the case with Higuain and uh, and, and, and Llorente. Um, want to finally end on the current Roma situation. We've been obviously heavily linked with Lille's Garcia. Um, my first question would be, would Andrea Zoli still be in the job 
if he'd won the Coppa Italia? That'll be my I, first question. I don't think so. Um, and that's all he was a was was a Scott stopgap. He was kind of like a last roll of the dice. I think what what would have happened um, had he won, then you know, Palotta would have budgeted differently. Uh, there'd be a different climate around the club. Baldini would probably still be around. Um, I, I think those would have been the outcomes, but I think there would have there would have been a different manager. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the idea of Rudy Garcia. Um, I don't know that I love him for Roma. I think you know this will be basically the if, if he gets the job, it'll basically be the third straight season that they've kind of made a. How can I put this? A slightly esoteric choice. Of why, do you, why do you not think that that could work uh, with with? Uh, Garcia. He, he could work. I just don't know that, you know, having spent all that money and having such a, you know, what for my money is the best squad in Serie A apart from Juventus. Um, I, I just don't know that that they're willing to gamble again, that, that, that it makes sense to do that. Um, that said, Garcia showed at Lille, he played some great football, I think, this past year. They were let down by, by bad transfer decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who who didn't maybe work out, but you know you got to remember two years ago um, they you know the the it, it were really for the last you know the, it was two years ago they lost Jervinho they lost Musa Sal you know they, they they lost important players and they were always able to uh, they lost Adil Rami Hazard. went to Valencia you know and then of course last year they lost uh, they lost Eden Hazard and, mm-hmm. and maybe that was uh, a, a bridge too far but. I, I think it's been a case of they brought the wrong players right. um, this past year, and that's why they struggled a little. Um, but you know, remember, I think uh, I might think did they beat Bayern Munich in the in, in the Champions League, if, if, or or Schalke played them close? Yeah. Um, so he's he's a good manager. It'll be interesting to see how he copes with uh, with better players if indeed he gets the job. My one concern, though, is it is difficult to manage in Rome. Um, to do it without Baldini there is going to be even more difficult. Yeah. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, I, I would hate, I think it would be really bad for Italian football if then Pallotta decides to just pull the plug on the project. Yeah. Well, what would be his first task at Roma? I mean, would it would it be securing European football again or would it be his very first task be stopping Lamala and possibly De Rossi leaving the club? Well, Lamela, obviously, they want to hang on to, um, and I think they will hang on to. Um, De Rossi is a slightly different issue. I think, you know, he makes so much money, and he's he's at a stage of his career. They have other players who can, you know, who can play that position. Uh, obviously, Bradley's coming off a good season. Um, you know, for the right price, I think they would sell him. Certainly, I think, you look at that squad, the goal has to be Champions League football. Mm-hmm. They've already added Benassia. Uh, to the back, uh, you know, again, you talk about Benacia Marquinhos in central defense. Um, that's a pretty good partnership, probably, yeah. a, again, a better partnership than uh, than any in Serie A, except possibly for, for, for Juves. Um, you know, obviously what they have going forward with Lamela, Osvaldo, Destro is, is absolutely terrifying. Um, if they, if he finds a way to get the best out of Pjanic, who I think is a is another very very good footballer, you know. All of a sudden, you know, you've got you've got a very very good side, and and again, this is a very good side that really hasn't lived up to its potential the last two years. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's about all we have time for, actually. Uh, we did ask uh, people on Twitter if they had questions, but I'll j just do one of those, because we did have quite a few. And so, w if we just do uh, one that came in from Footballista, who said, um, what's the most extraordinary press conference you've ever been to? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um... You can, you can name more I, than one if you. <laughs> I'd have to no. I'd, I'd have to. Um, I'd have to think about it. Um, I certainly. I mean, I remember. Oh five oh six in Paris. I remember um, Barcelona won the Champions League. I remember Joe doing the press conference with his son on his lap, um, and just kind of thanking everybody and getting so emotional about what it meant to him. Um, that was certainly special. Um, I remember Ruud Hullet, after being sacked by Chelsea, uh, going to, doing a press conference from Terry, the, the, a nightclub that was Terry Venables owned in, uh, it was called Scores or something like that, mm. um, where he basically gave everybody both barrels. Um, yeah, no, there's been, uh, <laughs> there's been a bunch. <laughs> I bet there has. Thank you very much, Gab. We really appreciate you talking to us and um, we really can't wait to release it for, for yeah. people to listen to and we've certainly enjoyed listening to you. No, guys, it's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Actually, it wasn't quite a press conference, but the moment that will always stick out for me, um, I was at the 98 World Cup. Uh, it was before the final, Brazil and France. Mm -hmm. And Pele was there and he was hanging out and kind of, talking to everybody who would listen he was there as like a testimonial for he was you know he did that deal with mastercard and and he sort of you know standing around and there's like 20 journalists around him and he's talking you know the beautiful game and ronaldo blah 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 and then all of a sudden there's a commotion at the end of the hallway mm. and everybody just just turns their back on him and they sprint off and um and i'm left behind with like pele his handlers and one other guy and uh and then and Pelé asked, like, you know, what's going on? Where did everybody go? And uh, one of them said, uh, Maradona's here. <laughs> and, uh, I just kind of thought, like, you know, it, it gave a new sense to, to celebrity, to the fact that, you know, Pelé talks every day, but, yeah. uh, you know, Maradona <laughs> is, is still kind of, a, you know, <laughs> on, a, on a plane by himself when it yeah. comes to attracting attention. Yeah. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. We hope you can join us next time on the Sofa Football Podcast. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Sofa Football, as well as on the website sofafootball.com. Goodbye from us and have a great week. Mm -hmm.